Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. We're going to continue with some of the account of Elijah and Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 21. You can turn there ahead of time if you'd like. As you're doing that, often when we think of the Bible or when people think of the Bible, they think of this huge dichotomy, and and certainly they are at the opposite ends of the spectrum, uh, of heaven and hell. Uh, We're not going to get into the dynamics of hell this morning. Uh, Scripture certainly does tell us that there is a place of horrific separation from the presence of God. That there's a place of judgment where we are separated from the beauty and life and joy of who God is. But in addition to this, Scripture also talks about heaven and earth. And this one we sometimes think a little bit less about, heaven and earth. And the Bible's vision for this is that in the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, heaven and earth were together. They were merged. Uh, Sometimes we think of heaven as the place up far in the sky, by and by, kind of totally detached from earth. Well, in one sense, that has levels of truth to it. The the bigger idea of scripture for heaven is this place where God rules. Oftentimes you find the language in the gospels, kingdom of God being synonymous with kingdom of heaven. And so the heaven is the place where God rules, where his influence is over things. That's why when Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's prayer, he said, pray that my will would be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And so the vision of scripture is that heaven and earth be more joined together. In fact, that's God's vision for the ultimate future, for heaven and earth to be reconnected as they were in the garden of Eden and for God's presence to be with us and for us to be with him. For there to be a new heaven and a new earth and for God's will to be done fully on earth as it is in heaven. And what he calls you and I to do as his followers is to live out on earth the the qualities or the distinctions or the characteristics of heaven. Jesus is the only person who will one day fully bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, but the vision of Scripture is for us to live out the qualities of heaven here on earth, the characteristics of heaven here on earth, that they would become more and more united and more and more seen to be connected to one another. Well, in First Kings chapter 21, we actually have the opposite of that. In First Kings 21, we're going to find a serious case of injustice where what God wills in heaven, what God desires in heaven, is not being done on earth. Oftentimes we talk about the word justice in our day, and sometimes depending on which circles you're in, that can be a challenging or difficult or kind of sensitive word. Interestingly enough, 
Often in the Old Testament, the same Hebrew word is translated both justice and righteousness. Often that's the case. And sort of the idea behind that is this. Justice is the idea that we rightly treat one another according to who God is and according to his character. We know what righteousness is. Righteousness is God's goodness. Righteousness is God's perfection. And so justice sort of looks like more the horizontal sense of God's righteousness being lived through us as we interact and as we relate to our fellow human beings. That's a sense of justice. We treat them as fellow image bearers of God. We treat them as having value in God's sight. And so we treat them as heaven would desire that we treat them. That's what justice is very, very simplistically. Once again, in 1 Kings chapter 21, what we find is the very opposite of justice. I'm going to read through the first seven or so verses, and I'll read this in three different sections. The chapter's quite long, and then we'll just dive into some things along the way. And as I read this, I'll just break in a couple of places, but use your imagination uh, one of the things that we do when we read scripture is we, we kind of bring ourselves into the story. And so don't just hear words. Use your imag imagination to transport yourself into the story. Visualize yourself as being in the story. Live within it. It'll actually help you to remember the story a little bit more clearly. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the place of Ahab, king of Samaria. Now, just a little quick break here, just to find out geographically where we are, because again, one of the ways that we use our imagination is to bring our, ourselves into the space and time. It's going to be a map on the screen. You'll see a couple of the locations that we already looked at. Uh, there's Mount Carmel in the top left. Remember, that's where Elijah calls down fire from heaven. Just to the southwest or southeast of that is Jezreel. That's the exact location that we're talking about. Uh, Samaria was actually a town a little bit further to the south. Uh, that's where Ahab's main palace was. But he also had a palace in Jezreel as well. There's going to be another slide that kind of zeroes in on that a little bit more specifically. Uh, there's Mount Carmel again to the left and Jezreel close to the Jordan River. Just for perspective, remember the Jordan River is where Jesus got baptized. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is where many of the miracles happened, where Jesus walks on the water, uh, where storms are calmed. Much of Jesus' ministry, about 900 years after 1 Kings chapter 21, happens right around that Sea of Galilee. That's the kind of the environment we're talking about. But this is happening in Jezreel, and that's where the town of Jezreel is. On with the story. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking 
and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. What's about to unfold is a terrible act of injustice. And before we get to that, I kind of want to go back a little bit and look at what is the source of injustice? Where does that come from? And do that, we kind of need a little bit of the bigger picture. Often when we read scripture, when we dive in, we're sort of maybe put off by how stringent God is on the fact that people should worship and obey him. I remember in Exodus chapter 20, the first four of the Ten Commandments that God gives to the people of Israel all talk about their relationship to God. In other words, before God talks about their relationship to others, he talks about their relationship to him. The Ten Commandments begin with this is how human beings relate to God. This is who we should worship. This is how we should respond to God, how we should relate to him. And then the rest of the Ten Commandments talk about horizontal relationships in terms of how we should treat each other. Here's a couple of the first four commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself any image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I and the Lord your God am a jealous God. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Again, what that means is not that we shouldn't swear. I mean, certainly it includes that. But what that actually, the deeper meaning is simply this. Don't use God's name for your personal agenda. Don't use God's power and his might and his authority. Don't sabotage that to accomplish your own agenda in his name. And then remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. And he goes on. He says, remember the Sabbath. This should be a day where your primary focus is rest and replenishment and focus on God's provision for you. Now, why is that important when it comes to injustice? Simply for this reason. God knows that what you worship matters. Worship is not just a spiritual activity. Worship is not just an exercise of the brain. Worship is not just about your spiritual nature. Worship, what you worship vertically, has everything to do with how you'll treat others horizontally. Let me say that again. What you worship vertically 
has everything to do with how you treat others horizontally. What you worship matters. Worship is not just a spiritual activity. It doesn't just leave you static. What you worship directs who you become. What you worship shapes you. What you worship leads you. Worship has everything to do with bridging heaven and earth together. When we worship false gods, when, we, when this is wrong, when we worship the wrong God, this becomes sabotaged as well. That's exactly what happens with Ahab. You know, one of the sort of mantras of our modern day culture is simply this, follow your heart, follow your passion, do what you desire. You know, that's exactly what Ahab is doing. Ahab desires this vineyard. Jezebel desires to get Ahab his vineyard. That's a desire that Ahab should not have followed. You see, God knows that left to ourselves, we're twisted, we're broken, there's darkness, there's evil in our lives, and that distorts how we treat others. Instead of treating them as fellow image bearers of God, instead of treating them as, as, as having value in and of themselves, now we relate to them with how can they serve us? How can they be exploited for our benefit? How can this relationship be self-serving? Rather than us serving others, we look how they can serve our interests, be of help to us in a self-centered kind of way. That's the source of injustice. When we get this wrong, this also gets messed up. It gets distorted. It gets sabotaged. So when God says, worship me, it's not actually a self-centered thing. The more that we worship God, the actual, the more that will bless other people. The more that your heart is aligned to the God of heaven, the more your heart will be appropriately engaged with fellow human beings around you as well. Ahab should not have just followed his heart. His heart was distorted. His heart was messed up. And so is mine and so is yours. In fact, just to show how much God cares about the vulnerable and justice, it says that Naboth refused to sell Ahab his vineyard, because it belonged to his ancestors. We're not going to take the time to get into this, but you can look at uh, Leviticus chapter 25. It's around with 23 through 28. You can take those verses, look at it maybe when you get home. And, and here's some instructions God gives to his people in Leviticus 25. He says, if somebody is poor and they need to sell their land to get out of poverty, they can do that, but that, the sale of that land is not to be permanent. Instead, the, the sale price of the land is to be based on the year of Jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, what happened every 50 years, all the land would revert back to its original owner. And so, in other words, if you sold your land within two years of Jubilee because you needed to get out of debt and you were impoverished, it would be a low sale price because the, the new owner would only really own that land for two years and then it would revert back to your possession. God wrote that into his law precisely because he didn't want people to be locked into poverty. He didn't want people to be perpetually destitute. 
God is so concerned about justice and how we treat fellow human beings. His law to his people in that time was you can't permanently sell your property. It has to revert back to the original family every 50 years because I don't want people to be perpetually destitute. I don't want poverty to be locking and binding people in. That's how much God cares about justice. That's how much he cares about humanity. You know, obviously a pretty significant conversation in our country these days is the overturn of Roe v. Wade. If you've been around Southridge, you know that we're, we're passionate about that issue. But we're also just as passionate that we respond to others with gentleness and kindness. We're just as passionate that we love and show compassion and care for those who are vulnerable. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, several years ago, we had Stephanie Gray with us, and Stephanie is a very, uh, just speaks with amazing clarity when it comes to, to life issues. She was here as our guest for an Accelerate weekend. She travels all over the world. Uh, she did one of the talks at Google, which is a pretty challenging thing to do with that kind of audience. Uh, but in just a minute, you're going to see a clip, a five-minute clip that she actually gave in Mexico. And so there's actually uh, Spanish captions there, as you can see that. Uh, but I, I want you to hear, number one, how she starts out with a desire to care and love. Acknowledging that when it comes to issues like abortion and women and babies, that we care deeply. And yet also how a sense of justice drives how we see that issue from Scripture. So take a look as Stephanie articulates this. Everyone on this stage and in this room agrees about something. What we agree about is to be pregnant and young, to be pregnant from rape, to be pregnant and poor is a difficult, tragic, crisis-packed situation. We agree on that. And so there's no need to debate that. Today, the debate is about this. Is the act of abortion an ethical solution to what we all agree is a difficult problem? And in order to answer that question, we need to ask a question. And that question is this. Do we believe in human rights? I'm going to guess it's safe to say we do. I believe in human rights. So next question is this, who gets human rights? Well, if children get children's rights and women get women's rights, then humans get human rights. So when do humans begin their lives? Science has taught us that beings which reproduce sexually begin their lives at fertilization or conception. They begin their lives at sperm-egg fusion. For it's in that moment that the one-celled embryo is alive because the embryo is growing. Two cells, four cells, and so forth. We know in that moment the embryo is human because the parents are human. So here's another question. What do civil societies expect of parents? We expect parents to help, not harm their children. 
That is why there is universal outrage at news headlines that say things like parents starve, kill, torture their toddler. Because we recognize the child should be reverenced by the parent. So when does parenthood begin? When does a male and a female suddenly become a father and a mother? Will since offspring begin at fertilization? that you know at that moment that that individual is genetically distinct from the male and the female, and in that moment bears some genetic similarities, but is distinct genetically from them, and therefore where there is offspring, there is suddenly parents. And so because the act of abortion dismembers, decapitates, and disembowels the body of a child, it ought to be rejected. In fact, the United Nations in its Declaration on the Rights of the Child has said the following, I quote, the child, by reason of his physical and mental immaturity, has rights to special safeguards and care before as well as after birth, end quote. The words of the United Nations. The United Nations has also adopted the covenant on civil and political rights. And in this document, it says, in countries where the death penalty is legal, it may never be done on a pregnant woman. Why? Why? What is the difference between a guilty woman who is pregnant and a guilty woman who is not pregnant in a country in which both women have committed a crime that their country says is deserving of the death penalty? What is the difference in the body of one of those women is an innocent child? We might debate about whether guilty people should get the death penalty. But everyone agrees innocent people should never get the death penalty. And so the very fact that the United Nations is saying a pregnant woman may never get the death penalty even though she's guilty is because it would kill an innocent child. If it is wrong to kill a preborn child because or by way of the death penalty, it is wrong to kill the preborn child by abortion. Abortion will not unrape a rape victim. Abortion will not make a poor woman rich. And abortion will not turn a woman's frog of a boyfriend into a prince. What it does do is take away the human right to life of the youngest of our kind, preborn children. Thank you. Yeah, just amazing, uh, amazing clarity that Stephanie provides for that. And what she zeroes in on is this idea that whatever our desires are, there's a higher level of authority. Ahab, with Jezebel's agreement, said, the vineyard should belong to me. My desires rule. My desires win. It doesn't matter how other people respond around me. My desires are what are king. The message of scripture is, we need to be worshipers of God because it's ultimately God who is the authority 
And when he is worshipped as the authority, then it allows for the horizontal relationships between human beings to flourish with justice as well. That's the source of injustice when we become our own authority. Notice that there's a lot of evil that happens here as well. I'll pick up in verse 8 and read on. So she wrote letters, that is Jezebel, in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have him bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposed to him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. Now I'm going to read these, these next few verses, and you might want to get out one of your hands and count off the number of times the word death or dead happens in the next few verses. Here they go. So they took him outside of the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. Verse 15, as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, for he refused to sell you, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Five times in those few verses, we're told over and over again, Naboth is dead. Naboth has been stoned to death. And the sense when you read those verses is that there's a sense of permanency to it. Naboth is dead, end of story. Naboth can no longer speak for himself, end of story. Naboth's story has been eliminated, end of the narrative. Naboth is dead. Naboth was stoned to death. Naboth is gone. Ahab wins the day. That's kind of what you expect. Injustice is evil. It brings about horrific levels of things. We know that invalidating the humanity of black people brought about slavery, invalidating the humanity of Jewish people, brought about the concentration camps. Friends, it's a horrific thing when human beings declare themselves to be God and their own desires are worshipped rather than God's. It's horrific. But I want you to notice something else too, just kind of pretty briefly. Certainly, it's an evil injustice to perpetrate wickedness or evil on someone else. But the Bible, the Scripture doesn't simply set the bar as don't kill or don't commit a serious injustice against someone. 
The Bible, especially to those of us who are followers of Jesus, says to us, it's also unjust for you to simply hoard what God has given to you for yourself and for your own consumption without utilizing it as God's steward to bless those around you. To use whatever influence or whatever position or whatever possessions that you have, it's also an injustice to simply consume that for yourself and hoard it for yourself and claim ownership to it when in fact it all belongs to God. And the reason that he has entrusted you and I with what we have is not just to meet our personal needs, but also to bless those around us. So why we as a church and why we in our prayer time prayed that women and children would be served and loved well. That's why we as a church support a pregnancy center. Because we don't just want to be talking about the injustice of killing a preborn child, but we also want to be active and loving and sacrificing and caring for those who are born, for those who are vulnerable. It's no accident that nationally, Followers of Jesus are twice as likely to adopt and do foster care than those who are not followers of Jesus. Again, I'm thankful for every last person who does that. But followers of Jesus particularly know that it's their responsibility to step up and love and serve others. And so followers of Jesus adopt at twice the rate of the regular culture. The number of pregnancy centers that exist, as far as I understand, actually outweigh the number of abortion clinics. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, here's what John says. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? How can that person really reflect the love and the beauty and justice of God? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So I simply want to remind us all as well. It's just because I may never participate in the taking of a life directly. I have to look at myself in the mirror and say, do I regard what God has given to me as my possessions that I'm entitled to, that I own, that I might have worked hard for? Or do my possessions, do what I belong first, do they belong first and foremost to God? And then do I respond to him in sharing and caring and showing compassion to others? Injustice is also evil. But the story doesn't end with Naboth being dead. You would think that it would. You think that's where the period would be. After all, five times, Naboth is dead. He's been stoned to death. But friends, God pays attention. Uh, God is focused in on this. And the lesson that we're to learn from this is simply this. God does not forget. Evil may seem to win. Injustice may seem to win. But God is going to have the final word. God is going to have the final say. God gets final judgment. Verse 17, then, after Naboth is dead, says it five times, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. It's almost a surprise. Wow, Elijah shows up. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take 
possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will look up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belongings to, to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel's wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Friends, Naboth may have been dead, but God was on the move. And I realize some of the stuff in those verses, and you can read the rest of First Kings and find out how that all works out. Literally, we're talked about, yeah, Jezebel's blood being licked up by dogs. We're told all about that. And it's gruesome and it's horrific. But God takes injustice seriously. I read an article recently, and I forget who wrote it, but their point was this. We live in an era where there's a lot of anger in our world. There's a lot of anger culturally. And the writer was saying, maybe the reason that our culture is so angry is because we've actually forgotten that God himself is angry at injustice. You see, if God is not angry at injustice, if, if we can't trust God, to straighten things out, if we can't trust that God is going to judge righteously and fairly, then we may as well even up the score as best as we're able. If God isn't going to figure it out, if God's not going to perpetuate righteousness, if we don't teach that God is unhappy and angry toward injustice and that which is evil, then we naturally are going to take up that mantle and say, I guess we've got to be angry at it because God is not. Listen, friends, what I can tell you is God's angry at injustice. He's angry at evil. He's angry at sin. And God will one day come as judge. But you also see that even though Ahab would endure his fate, and even though his judgment would be forthcoming and the change in his life wouldn't be permanent, God actually responds to some of Ahab's humility because God is a God of mercy. He's a God of compassion. 
And I asked Sam to come up. 900 years after this, God himself would come to earth in the person of Jesus. Jesus would be falsely accused. Uh, accusers would be brought in to make up accusations against Jesus. Jesus lived righteously. Jesus lived flawlessly. Jesus lived in perfect connection with heaven as well as in perfect connection with the rest of humanity around. Jesus lived both of these flawlessly. And yet Jesus was condemned. Why? Well, number one, because sin has to be dealt with. But number two, God's love toward you and God's love toward me is so strong that he said, I'm willing to judge my son rather than simply judging you. So kind of got an option. Look, we either take our own judgment, God's judgment on us for our own evil, the wickedness that exists in our heart, or we receive God's justice done to Jesus. Evil has to be paid for. God would not be loving if evil were just let go. So Jesus comes to make payment for evil. But he also says if that payment is not embraced, yeah, there's going to be judgment because God's angry at injustice. He's angry at the mistreatment of his creation. He takes that seriously. And he would not be loving if he did not. So the best thing that we can do is be worshipers of that kind of God. That kind of righteous, holy merciful, compassionate God. The God who takes injustice seriously, but also places it on himself. And if we worship this God, then we also become a means through which heaven connects to earth and how we relate to others. So Sam's going to sing this song for us, and we just want it to be a song where Will you focus on the beauty of the God that we worship? Will we get this right? And then say, God, help us as we worship you to love and serve and care for others and treat them justly. So listen to the song.
God, we want to be worshipers of you. As soon as we make it about ourselves, we distort who desire us to be. So may we worship you and may we serve and love others. May our lives be about you. 
And may we be gentle and humble as we relate to others. And may the kingdom of heaven come and may your will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And may we participate in that even now. We ask in the name of Jesus and everyone who agrees that. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Our prayer team will be down here to the right. Have a great July 4th weekend. Uh, Be safe. God bless and have a wonderful day.